Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, later on, we'll hear from BIV's tech panel. We'll talk about WeWork as well as ride hailing in BC. Coming up first, two experts from the insurance industry talk about a new market entrant when it comes to optional auto insurance. On September 11th, BIV's Business Excellence Series is back with our Women in Business panel. You'll get to hear from business leaders on the topics of equal pay and how successful women rise through the ranks at work. The event will take place at the Vancouver Club. I'll be moderating, and I hope many of you can join us. Visit BIV.com slash BES WIB for details. It's time now for our weekly BIV tech panel. Joining me in studio, we have Linda Faucus, CEO of Glue Technology Society. Good to have you back. Hi, Haley. We're also joined by Jeff Fox, technology executive. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hi, Haley. You're welcome. We have a number of topics to get through, but we're going to start with WeWork. Should we dedicate our segment today the to whole the energy segment of we? To the power of Adam <laughs> Newman. WeWork's getting teared apart in part for dedicating its IPO prospectus to the energy of we. It's also being questioned over whether it's actually a tech company. It calls itself a tech company many times over. Linda, what are your thoughts? Uh, I might be old school, but I think tech companies are companies that generate their revenue by developing technology. And WeWork is a real estate company. They rent real estate. They pass over those costs to people who rent hot desks and desks from them. So I think the mul- the majority of their revenue is coming from real-, real estate. So even though they use tech, even though they're talking big tech words like blockchain and data science and automation and AI, um, that doesn't make them a tech company. We're not a tech company if we use technology. We ought to actually create it. So this uh, space as a service is interesting. The fact that they they talked tech a lot in their pitch documents that they have SoftBank as an investor makes them feel techy, but um, I do not think they are a technology company. Well, Jeff, their valuation is kind of in line with the valuations of other technology companies. But if we were to dig into their financial model, are there any parallels that make it seem like a tech company over a real estate company? So there are parallels. So I I, I agree with Linda. They're essentially a real estate company and traditional real estate companies um, that lease space and resell is nothing new in the industry. Um, what is new in the economy today is they cater to uh, startups and small businesses, which uh, the U.S. economy uh, and some world economies are moving uh, increasingly moving towards uh, um, companies with uh, less than nine employees. So that's one change that uh, WeWork is leveraging. Um, the other um, high-risk area that they're leveraging is they currently have $17.9 billion stated on their IPO prospectus for leases that they hold. That's one of the. That, that's probably the single largest um, uh, long-term financial investment that they have. Uh, that's uh, like many tech companies; they're taking a lot of risk, and interestingly enough, they are relying upon their investors to essentially 
fund their uh, leasehold investments, their beautiful spaces that they buy around the world. So there are some parallels um, between the hype around how sometimes tech companies attract investors um, and what WeWork's doing. But by and large, their technology that runs their business is not uh, is is not what investors are investing in. They're investing in a uh, a, a business model that uh, is still yet to be seen whether it can move to profitability. It's, it's kind of like a techie IPO, though, isn't it? With two billion dollars in losses, right? <laughs> Sounding really tech-like <laughs> on its IPO side, um, but they've done a great job of selling themselves as a tech company. And I think that goes to the uh, the hunger that investors have for participating in tech deals. Technology has this idea that it's scalable. The, the, the money we can make on the other end of the deal is going to be infinite. Um, and that's just not, this isn't a scalable business. And the numbers, if you look into the, the numbers and the prospectus clearly show that they're not scaling. Mm-hmm. This just can't scale. So uh, it, says a lot to me about the the market for the investors. And by the way, SoftBank is the first out, right? So this is a great deal for SoftBank. I think perhaps they were really wise in climbing on a deal that looked kind of techy. They could sell at technology valuations, get out and make their money and let the investors left over deal with what's going to happen at the end when uh, there's no money left and they have these long leaseholds like Jeff just alluded to. And um, clients who can turn off the switch, they can walk away within 30 days, right? There's no there's no long-term commitment from their clients in most cases. So very challenging financially. It sounds like even the founder can walk away at any point. One of the risks is that there's no employment agreement, even though he's critical and to yet the company. Critical, yeah. Yeah, a- and also that he's charging a la carte for all of his services, like like registering domain names and things, buying buildings and renting space back. That's all very awkward. Yeah. yeah. I wonder, Jeff, how much of this is a product of sort of the frothy markets we've seen, these massive, over-the-top, unbelievable valuations. Is this kind of the, the latest iteration of that? Or as we work more of an anomaly, it's kind of different and an outlier in that sense. So... So change is the only constant. Uh, mm-hmm. I I I I believe that uh, um, WeWork has a business model, and it uh, it is there is quite a bit of hype going on. Um, the I think Haley, you're correct. It is they are riding a wave that has tend, tended to um, be perpetuated with the large ride sharing companies, Lyft. And uh, Uber, still, again, yet to be seen whether their IPOs will be successful. But right. thus far, it's, uh, they're pretty stable on the on, on the markets. So WeWork doing uh, an IPO will be a bellwether for other real estate companies. Uh, the one observation that, um, that I have, which we, we just discussed briefly, is that they are catering to a growing market of small startup companies in all industries, not just tech startup companies. Um, the challenge for them there is to, um, what, what's what's the case with all small startup companies is that as quickly as they start up, they fail. So WeWork's business model um, will need to take into consideration to keep their spaces filled to capacity and that margin between uh, the difference between the cost of the long-term leases and then uh, breaking it up into short-term will 
will will will be a measure of their success whether they can that they can reach that magical point where their their losses come into line with their profits and whether potentially a recession i guess too that's the other exactly. question exactly not looking good on that front no that's what i'm sure we're going to talk about more even though it's not a tech company. It's kind of interesting to follow. Moving on to our social media platforms, Twitter may be blocked in China, but Beijing is using it to spin the Hong Kong protests. It's doing this through promoted tweets from its Xinhua News Agency, which is a state-run media organization. Uh, I'm curious, Linda, what are Twitter's responsibilities here? Well, I'm impressed that they've actually taken responsibility in this case. And they've said state-owned media com or news companies are not allowed to buy ads on our platform. Uh, they identified this pretty quickly. They removed the 900-plus accounts and the 200,000 associated accounts. Um, Facebook, by the way, hasn't done that. Mm. So I think they're taking their responsibility seriously. They seem to be uh, understanding the role their platform is playing in the spread of misinformation in this situation. Um, they have publicly uh, shown the tweets that have been um, bandied about on their platform. They've also publicly called out the Chinese government, saying the IP addresses are from China. Uh, there's basically only one entity that can run those. Um, and so I think I'm impressed. I'm nicely surprised. And I got to say, it's one of the good, the highlights that have come out of this Trump fiasco, I'll put it in, in my terms, um, is that the social media companies are having to stand up and figure out how they are playing a part in the spread of misinformation, the hindrance of democracy, and the quality of life on our planet. And I'm really pleased that, that they're doing something. I'm not so impressed with what Facebook's done in this moment, but... Yeah. Well, there you go, Jeff. Has Facebook learned any of the lessons <laughs> over the last number of years around this? Well, so so Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, social media platforms—they're in the business of 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 doing two things: selling advertising and selling you, mm -hmm. uh, your 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 data uh, within within the, the the realm of reasonable privacy concerns. Um, China, the United States, Canada, around the world, um, Twitter, and other social media platforms yes they have a responsibility to uh to deliver information transparently and with the guidelines of not um allowing freedom of speech uh, inclusive of political views what they also ha have to increasingly monitor which it comes back to china is the misuse of their platform for um communicating information that's of a um, political nature that uh, violates their own rules and, the, and their own rules should be consistent country to country. Um, I, I, China being a fairly closed uh, state um, will, will, will use Twitter to its advantages, advantage. Obviously the current media is portraying, um, citizens of Hong Kong in a negative light, uh, and uh, it's Twitter's responsibility to um, to ensure that um, information is delivered truthfully and transparently. If it's if it's delivered by a country that um, uh, is uh, lying, then that needs to be 
um, stopped and called out. So I, I, so I, I believe social media responsibility with these companies is to, on one hand, be transparent. On the other hand, uh, to um, ensure that information is delivered truthfully. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that Twitter said, okay, state-owned media, no, you can't promote or buy ads on our platform. Uh, Tax-supported uh, media organizations, CBC, BBC, are allowed to. Um, that is an interesting um, tide mark for us to look to. And and I would hope that Facebook would understand that, that uh, that's maybe the way it should go. Facebook is still taking money from the Chinese government for advertising. So Facebook, again, very different position than Twitter. But these responsibilities, um, Twitter's just redefined it. And I hope that Facebook matches. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. Uh, Jeff, you'd mentioned a moment ago uh, that these companies, they're in part in the business of selling us. And on that note, one of the jobs of the future, according to a new report from the Brookfield Institute, might be digital identity guardians, someone who's going to mm. defend our privacy and our data. They're looking at potential employment opportunities in 2030 and how much it's going to change. And there are some interesting ideas around what the jobs of the future might look like. But Jeff, I'll start with you. How much change are we in for over the next decade? So uh, technology is evolving. There isn't a day goes by when uh, each of us in our personal lives or in our business lives are not subjected to something new. Uh, that being said, the capacity for each of us to understand, react, and focus on different technologies is 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 limited. Uh, so, in term the point you made about digital guardians, people that are looking out for me or looking out for groups uh, is a novel role uh, uh, and a, maybe even a novel career that uh, um, would be would be uh, um, would be a, a, a career that uh, someone or or uh, or a group that that is a special interest group could um, use to protect citizens from themselves and from the information they pose, they they post. Um, my observation, though, and even with myself, is though since we we live in an age where we're bombarded with information every day, uh, looking at people who can better um, can better uh, consolidate information for us, as as opposed to systems. Uh, um, I think is a role that that uh, may emerge in the future. Mm. Linda, what kinds of opportunities do you think we might see here in BC specifically, given sort of the landscape of our tech ecosystem? Well, I think disruption is going to be vast, even though the report, the people who participated in the workshops didn't think that the technology disruption coming was going to be as big as it has been stated. Mm. How it's going to affect BC, BC is a really creative environment here. So our creatives aren't going to be disrupted, but I believe it's going to disrupt the those um, robotized jobs, right? We're right. going to see a lot of our industries be disrupted with this, with technology and automation of technology, automation of these jobs. Um, but BC seems to think it's it's kind of protected from this, and and I I'm not sure that's quite true. But it's a fascinating study to read, and I love the job titles that are coming mm -hmm. out of it, like the dark web detective, yeah, the digital really cool. identity designer. We can create and and craft our digital online identities with 
the help of whoever that person or entity is. But um, not a great answer for you, Haley. But I'm a little <laughs> I'm a little mystified on how BC is going to move into its new world in this uh, automation tech adopted time. It's a good question. It mm. might mean that we're perhaps a little ignorant or a little naive about how much change is coming our way. Some of the jobs, like the dark web detective, sounds really cool. Yeah. Others are less glamorous. We have augmented receptionist. We have transportation concierge. These are roles where you are maybe driving the truck and now you're ensuring that these automated vehicles get to where they need to go. Could that maybe lead to some of the misunderstanding, Jeff, around, oh, I my job is going to change, but I'm not going to lose it. It's just going to be different. So all employment models change for all of us. Uh, it's obvious that we're increasingly moving towards a globalized economy. Uh, people that uh, do work for me, do work for me all over the world, whether they develop software for me, um, I've even experimented with an international concierge mm -hmm. to take care of my inbox. Uh, that person is also located in another, in a country other than Canada. Does it work uh, well? It, uh, sorry, I have to ask. <laughs> it, it works okay. Okay. Uh, I think, but, but it's another example of utilizing someone or a company to filter out the information that's not as important to me. Um, so global, so globalization, uh, for, for me is talking. If I talk to someone, um, in the office next to me, it's no different in my mind than talking to someone that's located in India, China, Brazil that I actually know. Well, I trust, um, uh, who does work for me or does work with me. And that's what we're seeing. You know, I have a 20 year old son and, and I've told him, You've got to figure out this line that must be on your resume works well with robots. Mm. Like we really need to start to understand how our careers, like you just said, are going to be augmented or going to be supported by this automated technology. Um, whether that's a robot or a piece of software, it doesn't matter. But uh, these traditional careers we see here are going to evolve um, with a lot of automated support. It's going to be a really interesting ride over the next 30 years. And this study is a fascinating look at the different perspectives on that across the country. It's really worth a read. At least the intro paragraphs for each province are worth looking over. Yeah, and you can find that with the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. A quick final question on this topic, Linda. For your clients, if some of them are maybe extending their working years, maybe they can't retire as early as previous generations, what does something like this mean for senior British Columbians? Well, that's exactly why Glue exists. We're here to help them get the skills they need to either live their daily life or participate in the workforce. So these, uh, it's it's really critical that our seniors, and that's anybody born roughly before 1964, have the skills to participate. Because if you don't, you are out. There is no gray zone here. Pardon the pun. But um, <laughs> it's really important that they get the skills and they understand that digital literacy is what helps us all participate in today's uh, society. It's not a nice to have, it's a must have. So we are here to help them do that. And that's not just ordering Ubers when and if an Uber gets to Vancouver, please make that happen. But it's also allowing them to stay in the workforce, even at places that are, are not yet really automated, like Home Depot and Starbucks, you still need to have a level of understanding of how to clock into your shift and tag the products on the shelf. And that's what Glue is here to help them do. 
Fair enough. You gave us the perfect segue to our final topic. Ride hailing is still coming in British Columbia. They haven't said otherwise, but there are some pretty important limitations on that. One of the biggest ones being the fact that it will be pegged to the price, the base minimum rate of a taxi and no coupons or discounts allowed. Jeff, we know Lyft is coming. They've committed to coming here. Uber hasn't given us a commitment yet, and they had some concerns about the regulations that might be here. Could something like this be a deal breaker for the ride-hailing business model if it costs just as much as a taxi? Uh, I I don't believe so, and I I've studied this business model in some detail. Uh, when I um, I love Uber and Lyft, and I've used it in in London, New York, San Francisco. Works very well, um, and there, and there's very little regulation in those uh, U.S. and international cities. So. On one hand, I'm surprised to see regulations being imposed in um, Vancouver and and British Columbia and the, and the selected markets where Lyft first and Uber second will 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 operate. Um, but at, at the same time, I pick apart the layers as to why the provincial government is doing this. Uh, they've introduced uh, a safety bar. They've introduced to to protect us supposedly. Uh, they've introduced a um, minimum charge bar. Uh, at the same time, that's to protect the um, the employees, those that are uh, driving vehicles, to 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 uh, to give them a, um, a a wage or a minimum wage in line with uh, um, British Columbia um, government regulations. So I, I look I look back and instead of just focusing on um, what exactly me as a consumer will benefit? I look at well, is it even a sustainable business model? Mm-hmm. Which which is is still a big question with Uber, Lyft, and other smaller ride sharing services. They're they're losing huge amounts of money uh, as opposed to the taxi industry and transit industry, which are built to be um, profitable, if not cover their costs. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Linda, one of the quotes I wanted to highlight, and then I'll get your thoughts on this. It's from the Passenger Transportation Board chairwoman. And she said, and this is an article on BIV.com, if a passenger thinks the fare is too high, they can take a taxi. Yeah. <laughs> what does this mean for ride hailing in BC? I don't know. I mean, the 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 bottom, the lower end restriction, so the 3 to $4 to, to get in the car seems fair. I don't know who gets in a taxi and doesn't think they're going to spend at least that. So that, to me, isn't a big deal. But we've got the surge pricing on the other end, which is going to be a hello wake up moment for Vancouver when our few events that come to town are in town and right. cruise ships are in the terminal, etc. Um, I think that what we're going to see here is this weird hybrid. We've got this van, this BC grown in BC version of a taxi, not taxi. So what is that? It just means we're going to have a whole bunch of terrible cars on the road who can pick us up for the same price as a taxi. They can cross boundaries, which is helpful. Um, they've got a few less restrictions on where they can roam. But I'm, I'm I don't think it's going to be all that. I should change that. What is going to be good is we'll have more ability to get in a car when we need one. And that's very tough to do in Vancouver. You can't put your hand up on the street and have someone pull over. That doesn't happen here. Certainly not at 10 o'clock at night and not if you're asking for a ride to Horseshoe Bay. So that's going to change. More cars, more cars on the road um, at taxi rates or higher is going to be 
a challenge. Um, and Vancouver, the small city that we are, we're going to have to figure out this congestion issue because San Francisco knows very well what it means to have an Uber and a Lyft clogging your city streets. Right. And Vancouver is is not going to be able to handle that well. So I like in the report that they are, and in your BIV article, that they are um, considering what to do at least around the cruise ship terminal in terms of restricting the flow of these cars in that area. It's already chaotic by Canada Place, especially you can have two or three cruise ships docking. Ships, by the way, that are getting larger and larger every year. It's thousands and thousands of people all going to the same restaurants, the same destinations, the same tourist attractions. Do either of you have the sense that this is kind of a 1.0 version of ride hailing that maybe, okay, we have some restrictions around where they can go, around pricing, but years down the road when the taxi industry's had some time to catch up, it might change? We So we talked about pricing. I, I, I am actually not that price sensitive. I, mm. I wouldn't have a problem with Uber Lyft charging exactly the same amount from point A to point B as a taxi. What what I love about Uber and Lyft is this subtle technology, which is um, which is my gratification. I can get a ride within a very short period of time, any time of the day, mm-hmm. twenty four hours, and that that is the um, that's one of the beautiful things about ride sharing. Now, those companies are making slight incremental technology improvements over time. They're, they're, uh, w- one of the latest one is, uh, um, I don't want to talk to my driver, which <laughs> seems uh, silly, but um, it's a simple example of one of the, of the hundreds of features that these companies are introducing that the traditional ride models like taxi and, and uh, other forms have been stagnant. They have not innovated. They have not um held the customer in their interest for decades along comes uh along comes an industry that um do want to be profitable um they're not just an investment game they obviously have two a two-sided marketplace they've got drivers and they or they've got drivers that are selling their service and they've got uh they've got uh consumers that are buying the service. So they need to ensure that um, there's innovation on both sides and they'll tweak, they'll introduce these small features to both drive their business towards profitability and at the same time, give us all what we want, which is nice little convenient um, features that are part of the overall service. I think that maybe, I'll be optimistic here, maybe BC is creating kind of the perfect ride-hailing environment. Mm. Safer drivers because they require better driving driver training to allow us in their car. So we're going to be safer as passengers. And there we're going to take a focus on congestion in our cities. So we might not uh, ruin our city environments uh, as quickly as other big cities in the States um, have been proven to do. So perhaps with BC being so heavily restrictive on bringing these in, we might just figure out a, a happy medium between the two. Um, what we know is the taxis didn't work. With the situation in San Francisco doesn't work. So and the unsafety of being in a car, um, we've seen the many accidents that have happened with these poorly trained drivers. So it might be 
that BC is a guiding light in the way. I'm going to go with that because I'm really excited to get the services here. <laughs> they're, they're emailing me to say, Linda, get your class four driver's license and become a driver because I'm oh. on their list. I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> no but way. I'm really excited for them to be here. Yeah. I like the idea we can get a car from an app just like everywhere mm -hmm. else in the civilized world. Yeah. We can rate our drivers. Oh my gosh, that's a groundbreaking moment for Vancouver because some drivers are great. And in my experience, 90% are horrible, dirty cars, terrible service. Uh, that all now can be discussed openly. So these apps are going to allow that piece to come into BC. So bring it on. I like the positive angle. That's the perfect place to end. Jeff, Linda, thank you all so much for coming on. Have a good day. Thank you, Haley. That's BIV's weekly tech panel. Joining us for the discussion, technology executive Jeff Fox and CEO of Glue Technology Society, Linda Fawkes. As British Columbians continue to wait for ride-hailing services here in BC, many continue to drive themselves and insure themselves. And to that end, there's a new market player for optional car insurance here in British Columbia. Colin Brown is the CEO of Stratford Underwriting Agency. He's also ICBC's former chief underwriter and the founder of Canadian Direct Insurance. And he's the chairman of Altieri Insurance. And we have joining us today as well, the president and CEO of Altieri, Joshua Krennis. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Colin, I'll start with you. Why did you decide to launch another company in the industry? I know it sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? I, I We sold uh, Canadian Direct Insurance in 2015, and I, I stayed on to help with the uh, transfer to the new company. And then I retired in 2016, but I was a massive failure at retirement. It was, didn't go well at all. <laughs> um and then, of course, the uh, the problems with ICBC started to come out into the press, losing $2 million over the last few years. And I was surprised at how poorly people responded, uh, the private sector, other com companies uh, responded to that. And I just thought we could do a better job. How much room is there for the private sector to really step up and offer options? Well, there's tons of room, actually. There's about $2 billion worth of optional business in the province. And um, even though the private sector has been around up and down, in and out for 30 years, they only have 10% of that. Hmm. So they only have 200 million. So there's a lot available. People say there is competition in BC, but it's not nearly as competitive as it should be. Yeah, Joshua, give me a sense of the landscape of the insurance industry here. How monopolized is it among larger players? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, ICBC obviously controls... Uh, the majority of the marketplace for optional insurance, um, as well as the compulsory basic portion. Um, as far as the optional, uh, before Stratford came along, there was really only two major players in BC that you could you could choose from. And, uh, you know, it, it comes down to educating the public because a lot of them don't know that you can use them. Um, with that being said, uh, the two uh, that were here prior to Stratford uh, are very restrictive with the drivers they will uh, allow into the program. Mm. Um, so it doesn't give a lot of British Columbians a lot of options, to be honest. We talk sometimes on the show, Colin, about the underbanked with regard to financial services. Are there market segments that really are severely underserved when it comes Absolutely. to insurance? Absolutely. Well, I, I was, as I say, quite disappointed that the the private sector players that are here didn't step up. You know, ICBC has been wounded for, you know, a couple of years. They're, they're Minister called them a 
dumpster fire. Right. I mean, really, there was a good target to take a run at. That's them. And, and I don't think that the private sector has stepped up. They, the, you know, the, the, the sector is underserved, very. And so we not only believe that we will take part of that 200 million, but I would like to see it. I don't see why it can't double. Give me a sense of why you think the private sector hasn't stepped up. $2 billion seems like a sizable enough market to go after. Well, you'd think so, yeah. Although they look at it as $200 because they're not really thinking past, thinking outside the box, whatever mm -hmm. the phrase might be. Um, I, I think of it as $2 billion. They think of it, well, we've only got $200 million, so let's not put it. And they're back east. Largely. Mm -hmm. We're a local player. We're born and bred here in, in BC. We're based on the same kind of ideas of Canadian Direct. We're using a lot of the same things, but with more technology now. So, no, they're just, I don't think they have as good a feel for it as, as we do. Joshua, you mentioned a moment ago the education piece. There have been quite a number of changes at ICBC recently. You mentioned maybe British Columbians don't know that they can go to the private sector. How much of this do you think is just a matter of convenience? People go to ICBC because they don't really understand what their options are. Yeah, for sure. I think, well, I think it's twofold. I think one, um, the ICBC agent that you're using has very little incentive, if any, to uh, place your business outside of ICBC. Um, and secondly, um, there's uh, the option for, for customers to actually um, do their own research and look elsewhere. But uh, before Stratford, there was also little incentive because they weren't taking the drivers that they probably should have been taking. Uh, so even if you did the research and wanted to move forward with someone else, you actually weren't eligible. Um, so that's all kind of changed with Stratford, which is really exciting. We know that rates are on the rise at ICBC. Mm -hmm. It really exacerbates a severe affordability problem for many people in British Columbia, particularly in Metro Vancouver. How much room does the private sector have to stay competitive and keep costs low? Good question. Uh, I, I think uh, th there is room. I personally believe that ICBC will probably m move the rates somewhat higher than they actually need to be because they got a they got two billion dollars that they've essentially lost. Right. So that gives a margin there. But uh, with Stratford, we're we're looking at technology. We want to help young drivers, and so we will have uh, uh, telematics technology, which is uh, based on your driving. Hmm. And if uh, younger drivers will put that on their phone, then they'll immediately get an 11% discount from us. No questions asked. Also, we are partnering with eBrake, who are arguably the best distracted driving app out there, uh, which stops you using your phone while you're driving. And if uh, and so we're partnering with them. And if you put that app on your phone, there's another 5% discount. So there's lots of room. And so we are finding the, you know, Josh was saying that people are uh, maybe a little bit more restrictive. We're trying to be as open to people as possible. Joshua, how much innovation are we seeing in the insurance industry at large when it comes to technology? Uh, you know, it's funny. I was talking with uh, a good friend in the industry about uh, the race to becoming the digital player in insurance mm -hmm. in Canada, because there's obviously a number of us who are trying to get everything online as quick as possible. Um, and you can see it happening now. You can see that it is a race and people are doing it, uh, starting to do it well now. But uh, that hasn't really happened with auto yet. Uh, auto has been uh, left behind. And I'm talking specifically about BC because you know, we still are dealing with the Crown Corp uh, and you still have to get uh, at least one basic portion from ICBC. So you can see Stratford coming in and they are offering the online portion and it's going to be 
pretty exciting what's coming up in the next 12 months with brokers and their platform with Stratford. Uh, so you can see that coming to fruition in BC for sure. It sounds like Stratford's quite innovative in BC. Are there other firms in other provinces that are doing things along the lines of what you're doing? Well, little bits here and there. Um, some of the companies that are operating in BC and, in our opinion, not doing a great job are stronger elsewhere. You know, and it, to them, they care about, say, the Ontario market or the Quebec market. The difference is they don't really care about the BC market. Right. And, but we do. Uh, and so, yes, there are some of these features, and you can see them not just in Canada, but uh, through the U.S. with some of the companies like Progressive and, and so on. But um, not many people here in B.C., in fact, n- none really. And that's why we want to take a leadership position. Not that this will be of your concern, but what happens if you're successful and you pull business away from ICBC? They're already in a financial pickle and you're taking away business. What happens to our Crown Corp? Well, let's let's say this. They've lost 10% in 30 years. If they lost another 10%, I don't think they're go- we're not going to be holding a jumbo sale for them in the short term. They're still huge. They still have a monopoly on the basic, which is over 50% of their income. And that's not going to change in the near future. So uh, they'll be fine. But if they need any money, I'm sure Joshua has got a pal in the financial services industry. <laughs> help them out. You can help <laughs> yeah, them out yeah. a bit. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit what we can accept from, expect from Stratford in the coming months. Well, we, uh, we launched officially yesterday, Monday. Um, we, our, our first rollout is with the Sussex group of agencies, which is approximately 50. So we will be throughout the province. Uh, and we're rolling them out as we speak. We're, we're essentially doing almost a brokerage a day. So uh, we'll have all of that, all of the Sussex group done within the next few weeks. And then we're talking, and of course, Altieri's already out there selling like a champion. Um, and then we're going to roll out other brokerages. I expect that within six months, we'll have well over 100 outlets throughout the province. Uh, we handle our own claims because that was one of the big things from Canadian Direct Insurance. We had, a, we had an award-winning claims uh, department. And so we're going to be very similar. We'll handle our own claims. Um, as Joshua mentioned, we'll have an online presence. What we'll be able to do within two months from now is that if you go online to our site, and identify a broker, you can click on that broker and buy your policy online in your jammies. Uh, and the, the broker will get the credit for the sale and the commission and you just sit there and, with your cup of coffee. So we hope to have that within less than two months. And, and that'll be great because there's, there's a hint out there that ICBC are going to be offering basic online. They've already talked about it. Mm. And so it is possible that within the next short while, you could you could sit at home and do the whole thing. Interesting. And we're going to help. <laughs> and Joshua, for Altieri, <laughs> what does this partnership, being able to have this option to provide to customers, mean for your business? Uh, it means a lot, actually, because you know we we have a secondary brand as well, which is all online focused and sure today, um, and that is where this will fit in really well um, for Altieri right now. The platform itself with Stratford is is exceptional. It's uh, really fast. It's comprehensive. It's really easy on the broker side to use and easy to to help the customers along. And I think if they take it that next step further, um, for us, it, at the end of the day, it just becomes easier for us to provide the product that people should be should be taking anyway. Colin, Josh, thanks so much for coming in.
Thank you very much for having us. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also listen to all of our episodes over at BIV.com slash audio. And of course, for more business news, head on over to BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. 